this uh, parsha is Lech Lecha, and it's uh, probably one of my favorite ones because it's the. Um, it really begins to lay out um, the life and time, times of Abraham, but more than that, it also provides uh, all true uh, followers and lovers of Hashem with a. Um, a pattern or mechanism by which you can compare your own life. As we have been watching this uh, news cycle with all of the stabbings and the things that are going on in Israel, you realize that at some point this is old news. I mean, this stuff has been going on since Israel became a state. But then when you study the Torah, you realize, no, it's actually been going on since Avraham. There's always, uh, the story of the Jewish people have always been about struggle, has always been about having a difficult time doing what you're going to have to do. And in the story of, of Lech Lecha, in the story of Avraham, we have to ask ourselves the question, why did God select or choose Avraham? It says in the text, later on in the portion, God says, I chose you because you will teach your children and they will obey the commandments. And of course, Abraham obeyed all of those commandments as well. I was listening to Rabbi Yosef Misraki the other day, and he was talking about why is it that the Jewish people have to struggle so much? Why does it seem that God is so hard on them? What's the purpose behind that? Why is he so hard? And he explained, he says, if you were to walk outside and see your son or daughter with a group of young people doing drugs, you would walk over, give them a smack, and tell them to go home. You wouldn't even probably even acknowledge the rest of the kids that are sitting there. Why? Because that's your daughter or your son, and you have high expectations of your daughter or your son. God told Israel and told Abraham, that he loved Israel above all of other people. He picked Israel first. He loved them. And it wasn't because they were a mighty nation. It wasn't because that they were, very, they were the wisest people. It's that they were, be, they were willing to accept a contract and to do the will of God and also accept the consequences if they don't fulfill the will of God. In this Parsha, I would like to... Uh, title it, Know What You're Fighting For. Know What You're Fighting For. This story is going to be in Genesis 10, uh, 14. And if you wouldn't mind reading uh, that for me, that portion, I would appreciate it. Genesis 14. And it happened in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that these made war on Bera, king of Sodom, Beershah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these had joined at the valley of Sidim, now the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedorlaomer, and they rebelled thirteen years. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and struck the Raphaim at Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, 
the Amim at Shava Kiriathi, and the Horites in their mountains of Seir. Now go ahead and skip down to uh, verse 10. The valley of Sidim was full of bitumen wells. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell into them, while the rest fled to a mountain. They seized all the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they departed. And they captured Lot and his possessions, Abram's nephew, and they left, for he was residing in Sodom. Okay, that'll be good for now. After Lot departed from Abraham and settled in Sodom, four kings went to battle, we heard these kings' name, against five kings in the area and defeated them. The scripture makes this point pretty clear that it was a great, very decisive battle. I mean, it was very devastating, so devastating that the whole wealth of the area was transferred to these kings. Now, now, mind you, the way we fight battles today, we don't plunder whole nations uh, when we do this because there's laws of land warfare that keep you from doing it. But back there in that time, you didn't have professional paid armies, so the way you paid your army was you, you plundered and took all the wealth and you distributed amongst your, your military and your commanders, etc. In this situation, uh, Abraham is told about this battle, and he's also told of the capture of his uh, nephew, Lot. Now, the text in the original text addresses Lot as a brother, not as a nephew. Why would you think he's addressed as a brother? Well, it's because he's of the same lineage, the same tribal affiliation. That's why he's called a brother. Abraham set out to rescue his nephew in advance, and advanced as far as Hobah, north of Damascus, which, if you'll know where Damascus is, you think of Syria. So imagine he traveled all the way up into what is now modern-day Syria to uh, fight this battle. It's very far from Sodom. Sodom is where the Dead Sea area is in, in Israel, if you can think of that. Genesis fourteen thirteen through 16, uh, if you would not mind uh, reading that for me, I'd appreciate it. Then there came the fugitive and told Abram the Ivri, who dwelt in the plains of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner, these being Abram's allies. And when Abram heard that his kinsman was taken captive, he armed his disciples, who had been born in his house, 318, and he pursued them as far as Dan. And he, with his servants, deployed against them at night and struck them. He pursued them as far as Hobah, which is to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the possessions. He also brought back his lost his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, as well as the women and the people. Okay, that'll be good. What is the significance of Abraham and his retainers relying to uh, rescue Lot? You would think if there was some type of bad blood between Lot and Abraham, in the sense that Lot took the lands of fertile lands, and Abraham went further east, maybe there was sort of a a family feud that took place, and Lot would say, you know, that's his problem. He needs to deal with this. Something bigger is going on. Relying to uh, this cause can be seen as personal in some levels, an obligation to one's family member. We all know that you, know, you can argue with your sibling or you can argue with your family member, but doggone it, nobody else is going to fight with them because you're going to get it. And so in, in general, this is it here. Not to ignore your own kinsmen. According to Isaiah 58, 7, the, the, the Torah very much, or the Tanakh very much tells us that you are not to ignore the plight of your family members. When we talk about family members, we're not just talking about 
your blood kin. We're talking about people within either your community or your tribal affiliation or your, your national identity. Several verses of Scripture stress uh, the family connection between Abraham and Lot. We talked about this last week. Indeed, Lot was the son of Abraham's brother, we find in verse 12. But when Abraham learned of, of Lot's plight, uh, and he realized he had been taken captive, he realized that he had no choice but to go after and rescue Lot. Lot is referred to as Abraham's brother in verses 14 and 16. From this, the Midrash uh, learns about Abraham's fine qualities, and it's found in the Midrash in uh, Tanhuma uh, Berber, and it says about Parshas Lecha, it says, Abraham heard that his brother had been taken captive, Gen- uh, uh, Genesis 14, 14, but was he Lot's brother? Rather, this is evidence of Abraham's modesty after all of the, alt- that all the altercation he had had with him, for it is written that there was quarreling amongst the herdsmen of Avram's uh, cattle and those of Lot's cattle. This is found in Genesis 13, 17, or 7. Abraham did not call to mind the quarrel, but called him brother, for it is written, for we are brothers. Genesis 14, 8. The disagreement between Abraham and Lot had not been personal. It was just a practical thing. Look, our herdsmen are having arguments amongst each other. We're having some issues with our our cattle getting mixed. Let's part company. This is not a personal thing. Lot journeyed eastward, and and, and thus, of course, Abraham parted the other way. He took for himself some of the values of the eastern world that he was living in. He wasn't an evil or a wicked man, but he had fallen into a place of deep material um, uh, captivity is probably the best word to say. It's a very materialistic world he was living in. It was very difficult for him to make the decision to leave, even after the angels were to warn him that the city of Sodom and Gomorrah would be destroyed. So Lot had fallen into a place of deep materialism. Biologically, Lot was Abraham's nephew, but in terms of of nationality, he was a brother. So Abraham mobilized a, a rescue team. Another way to view Abraham's mobilizing is to see the hostilities between the four kings and the five kings as an all-compassing war, meaning that at some level it was as if all the nations were at war at one time. Now, mind you, all of the nations are sort of sort of boxed in to the Mideast. Think about this. Uh, Iran... Iraq, Syria, North Africa, all of those nations were at war with each other. So that, you get, that's how you have to put it. Uh, in Genesis Rabbah 24.4, Rabbi Eliezer ben Anava said, When you see kingdoms fighting one another, anticipate the foots of Mashiach. And he says the proof of that is this text, because when all the, wars, all the, all the uh, kings came together to fight each other, and Lot was taken captive, who was the Mashiach? was Avraham who came and rescued him, who came and fought battle and, and rescued him. Redemption came from the hand of Avraham. The war was connected with the world of progressing and developing. Note the use of such an expression as footsteps of Mashiach and the redemption coming to Avraham. The descendants of Lot would be Moab, who is Ruth, right? 
Those are the descendants of Lot. Was destined to come, and later the Mashiach, son of David, would also come from Lot's family. Thus, it is absolutely essential to save Lot. Why did Abraham save Lot? He knew what he was going into battle for. He knew that it was essential that Lot is saved. Now, the Midrash continues to say that Lot knew that this is where the great king was, would come from. This is where the Mashiach will come from, is from the, uh, the, the descendants of Ruth. And Lot, if, if not rescued, this will at some level affect the outcome of the future world. It also says in the Midrash that the four kings knew that this was the case, and that's why they, they uh, captured Lot, was to somehow avert the whole thing so that there isn't one that comes at the final time to destroy the world. Now, how they know all that can, be, uh, can probably be explained by somebody a lot smarter than I. It says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and, re- uh, uh, and the regents intrigued together against the Lord, against the anointed. Psalm 2.2 is the text that is used. So it seems that the kings decide to come together to fight against God. Isn't that the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did? Almost the same thing, right? Well, in this situation, we are reminded by another text that says, by Rabbi Chaim ben Attar, author of a book called Or Hayim, explains why Abraham did not make a peaceful overture to the four kings before setting out to fight them. He says in this commentary this. Now, we knew it was customary for Israel to give a warning and say, look, if you'll give up, everything will be fine. So the reason that uh, being that they knew who Lot was and that he was Abraham's nephew, as is in, in intimated by Scripture, saying, Abraham heard that his brother had been taken captive. This indicates that they took him captive because they knew he was Abraham's relative. They knew. It's like, it's a no-brainer. Let's take him. This, we know who Abraham is. And thereby they showed themselves to be Abraham's enemies. Therefore, he pursued and defeated them. Abraham's involvement and rescuing Lot radically changed the course of war and brought a great victory to the kings of the land, who understood as well this was more uh, than, than just rescuing a private individual. It was about bringing stability back into the world. It was Melchizedek, which is Shem, who was the king of Salem, or Salem, uh, blessed Abraham upon the conclusion of the war. And he used these words in Genesis 14, 19. He says, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Now, there's a little midrash on he uh, Abraham mustering up his troops, and I thought I would share this with you. It says, When one enlists to perform an important objective of great value, be it an obligation of a personal, familiar level, of a family level, to be on the national level, one must act out of a sense of obligation concerning the objective itself. Meaning, altruistically, and not out of some narrow self-interest. Meaning that you got to know what you're fighting for. You have to know what you're fighting for. Now, you ask a lot of soldiers who go to war, 
And very rarely will they say, I've gone to war and I'm fighting beside my comrades because I'm fighting for our president or I'm fighting for our Congress. They really never say that. What do they say? For my buddy. They know. They, they have a very, I've got to stay alive. I've got to keep my buddy alive. They're very focused on what they're doing. With that being said, also this lesson can be learned from the patriarch Abraham according to the interpretation between uh, interpretation appearing in Midrash uh, Tanhuma. Um, it says, what is meant by Abraham when he says he took silver and gold and covered them? It's interesting. He says, then he said to them, you know we are going out to war for the purpose of saving lives. This is according to Midrash. So Abraham was saying, look, yes, we're going to get a lot of money, a lot of loot. We're going to take the wealth of the four kings, but that's not why we're doing this. We're doing this to save the situation and to bring Lot home. We're doing this because it's an important mission. But they did make a lot of money. We'll continue. He says, you know, uh, uh, do not set your eyes on riches, lest you think it is for silver and gold. Consider the verse which he says he covered them with silver and gold, as it says, there were wings of a dove sheathed in silver, its pinions in fine gold, Psalm sixty-eight fourteen. Although Abraham indeed um, shared the spoils of war with his men and even gave um, of it to uh, Anor and Ashkol and Mamre, who were, uh, remained in, in, on the home front, spoils were not the point of going to war. The war was for the sake of saving lives. Abraham's force was very small in comparison to scale. Let me just stop for a second and to, re- to remember and to remind ourselves of Israel's struggle in war over the last 68 years. It's, it's been maddening. In just about every case, they were far, far more outnumbered in, in battle and seeming to be at some level a very much at the mercy of whoever they were going to be fighting, all the way up to the Gaza War. Now, they weren't necessarily outnumbered, but clearly they were outnumbered in, in public opinion. And there's a video I think I posted up and sent you guys on, on uh, Facebook talking about the miracles of Gaza. An amazing story. But ultimately, it comes down to this. If your priorities are straight, Israel's priorities are straight. If our, our priorities are straight, and we know why we're going out to fight, it's a righteous thing. There is, there is such a thing as a righteous fight. And you're not doing it for personal gain, but you're doing it out there to rectify a situation. God will go to battle for you. He will assist you. This, this text talks about 318 men. Why odd number? Why the odd number? Well, no, no, no. What we say odd, I'm not talking about as in a numerical value. I'm talking about the fact that why 318? Why not, you know, why not round it up? Why not 300? Yeah, 320, right? Right? Yes. Hamash says the Talmud offers a Midrashic interpretation that 318 warriors whom Abraham mobilized consisted of one person. Abraham's loyal servant, Eleazar, who was equivalent to 318 people, as indicated by the numerical value of his name, which equals the number. Pretty interesting to, to hear this. Now, now, here's the other Midrashic thing that comes out that's, that's on the same line, and that is this. That Abraham went to his men and said, look, ever who doesn't want to fight, 
don't feel encouraged to fight, don't fight. Those who have uh, new spouses. Now, all these come from inside his camp, right? These were his people. He said, those who have new spouses, you don't go to war, you stay. You know all the rules of the law, because he knew the Torah. He knew the law that was passed down. He said, um, if, um, if, you have, if you're impure, you don't go. Right? He just parsed them down, parsed them down, and got down to the bare minimum. It didn't matter anyway, because Abraham was saying, we're outnumbered even if we took everybody. But what we're going to take is the very best, those who are up at the highest level of morality, of holiness, of cleanliness, and then God will be able to do what he needs to do. And of course he did. So at some level, you can almost see the fact that, you know, even if he only took Eliezer, and Eliezer was the only righteous man in his group, then for sure God would have done his part. That's why it's, it's important for those in the nations who, who are the Garim or the Noahide, to encourage the Jewish people with the words of, of that, that's in that video that comes from the prophets that say, look, God is here and has a plan and a purpose. If you will just do your part, God will do the rest. Don't worry yourself how you're going to fix the problem. Worry about how you're going to fix yourself, how you're going to do tshuva. And until complete tshuva takes place in Israel, this is going to be a problem. It's not going to be solved by Congress, not going to be solved by missiles, it's not going to be solved by a new peace plan from John Kerry. It's going to happen when people, when the when Israeli, Israelis begin to repent and truly live a righteous life. Now, um, covered that quite well. Okay, um, According to the Amora Rav, Abraham prepared his men for battle spiritually. This is an interesting concept. He equipped them by teaching them. He equipped them by teaching them. In that video, I was noticing that all of the number of young men that did tshuva during that time, during the Gaza war, you can see them putting on tzitzit. You see them wrapping tefillin. Beautiful, beautiful sight. At one point, um, you know, tears come to my eyes when I realize that this is what Abraham did with his men, that they all became higher elevated spiritually. He taught them. He gave them something of value to protect them. And it would almost at some level be like bringing the ark into battle, if that makes sense. What is the solution for us when we have to, when we realize that we are in a pitch battle for our own spiritual welfare or, or for our family members? The focus of the battle is not your enemy. The focus of your battle is yourself. The worst thing that can happen to a soldier is when he or she falls apart in the field because they have not dealt with themselves. It says, uh, according to Rabbi Yehuda Berlin, wrote in his commentary, Ha'amek Devar, which that's the name of the commentary, that the text here in Genesis 14, 14, bears a message of principle regarding how one ought to prepare for any war. The harder the fighting, the more one should study halacha and train with the sword. 
Thus Abraham did, teaching his trainers halakha so deep they had difficulty understanding the uh, and, and looked blank. It's like they were blown away by the teaching. Deeply studying the Torah, too, or also elevates the spirit and clarifies the objectives and mission of Israel as a nation. There are preconditions for setting out for war. You'll notice that the rabbinical community in Israel pushes up to the next level whenever Israel gets ready to go to war by going out in the field, bringing the Torah scroll, they're teaching, they're dancing, they're singing. There's something about elevating their soul to the highest level. I think that's why we saw the miracles and have seen the miracles in Israel's uh, history. Even in the case of a few against many, high-risk missions, great faith in God and God can help uh, help one can succeed with help can succeed and bring glory to God, as in the blessings of Melchizedek, king of Salem, when he says, "Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your foes into your hand." With this text read today, it's not an accident that Lecha comes during the time when Israel's struggling just to stay alive. And the most encouraging thing is this. No matter what the media says, no matter what the Arabs in the West Bank do, no matter how many blades plunge into the flesh of young Jews and Jewish men and women, they must keep focused on tshuva, and study Torah. And as they do that, realizing that if they will just do that, all of this will finally fall away. But if they don't do it, because a lot of people still need to do tshuva, you figure only about three, let's see, only about two point something million Jews actually are Shomer Shabbos out of 13 million. A lot of tshuva needs to take place. So you and, you and I need to know that we got, we're going to have to join into this spiritual battle. This is not a battle of knives and guns. It's a battle of souls. It's about transforming our lives and walking at a higher level and elevating Torah to its highest place. And what's so beautiful is in the time of all of this darkness that is taking place in the world, in which it seems like that, that uh, nations are fighting nations and kings against kings, Something covert is happening under the surface in which so many people are being awakened, their soul, and they're returning to Hashem, and they're taking upon the yoke of Torah, and they're believing in the one God of Abraham. And that's just the nations, not talking about the number of Jews who have done tshuva and decided this is it. This is it. We have to do what we have to do to, to make things right. We're living in a most incredible period of history. And we're seeing it unfolding. Who could have ever predicted that Russia and China would be in Syria right now? But there was a, a rabbi who quoted some 50 years ago that when Russia and China go to Syria, Mashiach, you'll hear Mashiach's footsteps. So think about it for a second. We're at the age of Mashiach right now. So don't get discouraged, guys. Don't get upset. Don't spend a lot of time uh, kvetching and complaining about what's happening. 
around the world. We just need to study the Torah, love God, talk Torah all the time, and watch what God is going to do. It's going to be an amazing thing that's going to happen. That concludes the lecture.